And I want to invite uh, my sister Jiru to come up uh, this morning and lead us in our scripture reading. And good morning, brothers and sisters. Um, today's um, Bible verse is from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 to chapter 5, verse 2. The new life. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion. That is may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Walk in love. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Thank you. Thanks, Jeru. So I think most of you know, I have two young kids. And having two young kids, I've had this experience multiple times over the past few years. It's one I think any parent who spends enough time around their kids is going to have this experience. You know that time where you're laying on the couch or standing, walking around, cuddling with your little baby. And you're like, this, this is so cute. This is so adorable. And then you feel something warm and wet on your chest. And you think to yourself, please let this be my imagination. And you look down and it's not. And you think to yourself, please let it be yellow. And it's not. It's a liquid brown. Anyone else ever been there? It happens, right? That, that's part of being a parent. Now, when you're in that situation, what is the first thing that you do? Run to the bathroom. You, if you're a good parent, you hopefully make sure that 
your child gets changed and cleaned up either by you doing it yourself or you delegate that to another adult in the room who's not covered in their poop. Um, but then once the child is taken care of, what's the next thing you do? This is not a hard question. You change your shirt. Yes, you take off the poopy shirt. You put on a new one because no one wants to walk around with baby crap on their shirt, right? <laughs> like that's just a fact of life. And we have been going through the book of Ephesians in our Sunday morning sermons. And in the first half of the book, we've been seeing all the amazing, wonderful things that God did in rescuing us. How he has a plan to make things right throughout the entire universe and how he rescues us so that we can be part of that plan. And how when he rescues and saves us, he doesn't just rescue and save us as individuals, but he forms a new community, the church that we get to be part of so we can live together as his people. And he sends his spirit to help us as we do this, to live inside us and guide us. And we're now in the second half of the book. And Paul's primary focus in the second half of the book shifts. It moves from God's incredible work in saving us to, okay, so what? How do we live now in response to what God has done? And today, Paul is telling us that part of following Jesus is taking off our old way of living, just like you'd take off a shirt stained by your baby's poop and putting on a new place of living in its place. Like you put on a clean shirt once you take off that dirty one. And so what we're going to see today is that following Jesus is a new way of living. We're going to see put off, put on, and why the change. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for speaking to us, for sharing with us who you are. We thank you for the incredible work that you've done to rescue us and form us into a people who can be your community here on earth. And I pray that you would be speaking to us today, showing us how to live as your people in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've seen once or twice already as we've gone through Ephesians, Paul just sometimes starts passages painting these really bleak pictures of humanity apart from God like really dark, really discouraging, really depressing. Like here today, he says that the Gentiles, which often is an ethnic term to refer to non-Jews, but here he's using it as a term to refer to people in general who don't believe in God, that, that they have futile minds, darkened understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. They have hardness of heart. They're calloused. It's just dark. And I don't know about you, like, I don't tend to think of people this way. I, I don't think I've ever met someone who would describe themselves this way. Like, would anyone in this room be like, yes, that's a, a great description of my life. We don't, whether we're Christians or not, we don't think of ourselves this way. Like, hard hearts. The heart's the control center of our lives. Do we ever think of ourselves as having a control center of our life that's just completely incapable of operating properly? Do we really believe that our minds are clouded in ignorance and futility and that these things lead us to live wrongly apart from God coming in and transforming us? The only people I've ever met who, who have that thought even some of the time are people who either are Christians and have trusted in Jesus or who are like on the way to becoming Christians. We tend to think, and our world affirms us in thinking, that we're all good. I'm good. You're good. None of us is perfect, but I mean, no one is, so that's okay. 
I mean, we may even look at the news and see crazy things happening in the world and think like, oh man, humanity is doomed. Humanity is a mess. There is no hope for the human race. But, but even when we, when we think that, we don't actually include ourselves in that picture of humanity, do we? We're like, humanity is doomed. The human race is a mess, but I'm one of the good ones trying to fight the good fight, trying to restore some level of sanity to the world. That's how we tend to think of ourselves. We're, we're in a world full of messed up people, but, but I'm not quite as bad as everyone else. There's still hope for me. And so we, we go through life not believing this is true of us. And, and here's the thing. If humanity is the ultimate authority in the universe, if there's no God, if we're all just the product of random chance, you can't say the things that Paul is saying about humanity in this passage. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with what anyone is doing because there is no ultimate standard of right and wrong for us to measure against if there is no God. If there is no God, we're all the product of random chance. It, it, it's not wrong or, or right to do anything. There's no objectively right or wrong things at all. No basis for morality, no reason for judging other people by our standards. But if there is a God, and if this God knows how the world works best because he made the world, and if he's spoken to us and taught us how to live best in this world he's made, then anyone who chooses to ignore what this God says and resist him and choose to live in ways opposed to what he says is actually choosing to live in darkness and ignorance. It's like one of, one of the things, I know I'm weird, one of the things I enjoy doing is, is trail races. You know, you run through the woods and like 20 miles or 50 miles or whatever over mountains and all that stuff. If, you, if there is a God and you are choosing to ignore what he says and choosing to ignore his way of living, it's like trying to run a trail race, like a hundred or a 50 mile trail race through the mountains at night on a course you've never done before that doesn't have any markings. And you show up at the start line and the race organizer is like, here's a map of the course and saying, no, thanks. I don't need it. Like that's a bad choice, right? Like if you refuse to, to follow a map or a guide, you're going to end up off course. You're going to end up lost. Once your headlamp battery dies, you're going to end up like physically in darkness. It's just a bad choice to try and chart your own course when someone's there handing you a map and saying, this is the right way to go if you want to know where to go on this race. On the race, you get lost because you don't know the way. There's a mental lack, not knowing the path of the race course, that leads to harmful behavior, you getting lost in the forest. And Paul is saying that dynamic is at play in our relationship with God. If we refuse, if there is a God and we refuse to listen to him, we refuse to take his word for how to live life best, it leads to a mental lack, not knowing what he says. And that leads to harmful behavior, to us acting in ways that are harmful to ourselves and the people around us. And Paul is saying that, that actually that's the case, but the problem goes even deeper than that. See, it's not just a mental issue, it's a moral and relational issue. The mental issue only exists because there's a heart problem there first. Biblically, like I said, the heart is the control center of who we are. It's what we love with and everything else we think and feel and do and, and the actions we choose, they're all done 
in response to what we love. So the Bible says we are designed by God to get all of our joy and purpose in life from knowing God and loving God and having him be our deepest love. That's how God designed us to operate best. Having a relationship with him, it's like a compass that that aligns us to the proper direction in life. It it points us in the right direction and it draws all of our, not just our loves, but our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions and our actions into the right direction. All of life is properly ordered if we have that proper love as the foundation in the core. But if we ignore God, if we get our loves out of order, then all of life ends up out of order. When our hearts are filled with the wrong loves, when we love other things more than God or instead of God, it actually creates problems in that control center of our being, which leads to mental ignorance, which leads to harmful actions. And Paul says that when we try to live this way, it leads to us becoming callous. I have a question. How many of you play guitar? Okay, like two. How many of you have ever tried to learn guitar? Okay, now out of the people who raised their hands and said they tried to learn guitar but didn't raise their hands to say they still play, why did you quit? There's like one main reason everyone quits guitar. It's hard and it's painful. It hurts. It hurts to play guitar. If you have never played guitar before and you're like, I want to learn, and you pick it up and you start trying, it hurts. Pressing on the strings, it's painful. And so, Everyone who starts playing guitar is in immense pain. But here's a little secret for you. If you keep playing consistently for a few weeks, you know what happens? The pain goes away. Because you build up calluses. You get these nice little hard pieces of skin on your fingers. You stick your fingernail in there and you don't feel anything. That's how guitar players are able to keep playing despite the fact that it hurts so much when you start. You get this extra skin that protects you from feeling pain. And Paul is saying right here, when we reject God, when we choose to ignore him, when we choose to live life our own way instead, we experience pain. No one likes pain, right? Like we can all be on the same page there. No one likes pain. It's uncomfortable, but this pain is actually a really good and important thing because it's, it's our body's warning system telling us something is wrong. It's trying to, it's like in the car, you know, in a car, some of the newer cars, if you don't buckle your seatbelt, they have this little thing that goes, because it's saying something is wrong and I'm going to annoy you until you fix it. The pain that we experience from rejecting God is like that warning system saying, get your life back in order. But if we refuse to go back to God, if we ignore that warning system, we become uncomfortable with the pain. We don't want to deal with that pain. And so our hearts do to God what our fingertips do to the guitar. They become hardened, they become callous, they block us from feeling the pain, and we just numb ourselves. And once that happens, it takes extra extreme stimulus to get us feeling things. So what do we do to reach that extreme? Well, Paul tells us we get greedy. We want more and more, more than our share. He says we practice impurity. We cross lines we know we shouldn't cross because we just get a thrill out of doing it. And it doesn't matter whether it hurts ourselves or whether it hurts other people. All that matters is the thrill that it gives us. And the lines that we crossed last week, 
don't give us the same thrill this week. So we have to cross new ones and we become greedy for even more. We run faster and faster, further and further from God. And we're so ignorant of our true state that we can't even see the reality of our situation. Our hard hearts lead us to futile and ignorant minds, which lead to behavior that's harmful and destructive of ourselves and others. And Paul is saying right here that apart from God, that's just the default state we're all born into. Whether you're a Christian or not, that's the default state we're all born into. If you're not a Christian, he's saying this is your reality still. I know that's uncomfortable to hear, but that's what he's saying. Your heart from birth has been operating off this belief that you are the center of the universe, not God. And so when God tries to say, I'm God, you say, no, 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 no. I don't want anything to do with you. And we resist him. We hate him for it. We double down on our hardness of heart and our futility of thinking. But we were never meant to do life on our own. We were made to know God. We were made to love God. We were made to be loved by God and find our purpose in knowing our creator. And as long as we resist him, as long as we insist on our own way, we're pursuing an exercise in futility. It can never give us the life and purpose and joy and meaning that we were made to know. But we can also see in this passage that that doesn't have to be your reality anymore. He's saying we all started there. In verse 17, when he tells his Christian audience, you must no longer walk in this way. There's an implication that if you're no longer doing something, it means you used to do it, right? And then you stop. We all started in this same place. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian isn't that Christians are somehow inherently better than non-Christians. The difference is that Christians have come to the point where we realize I can't do life on my own. I'm not made to be the center of the universe and I never was. I need God. And if you've never reached that point before, God's inviting you today to get on that right course for life by trusting in Jesus and putting him at the center of your life. And if you are a Christian, Paul's warning you here. He's saying there's this very natural tendency in humanity, even if we've been rescued from this harmful, destructive way of living, to turn right back to it, to go back to futile thinking, to go back to harmful behavior. And it's a trail that leads to death. And so if we want to find life in following God, We need to treat our old ways of thinking and living like we do a shirt that our baby pooped on. Take it off and put on a new fresh one. And it's not just a one-time thing. We have to do it throughout the day, every single day, because our natural tendency is to slip back into this old way of living. It's constantly rearing its head, constantly calling to us with its promises, constantly saying that our old way of living is the true path to life and joy but it's all lies. It's deceitful, he says in verse 22. It's actually the path to death. And so Paul is telling us that God wants us to be renewed in our thinking, to be recalibrated and reoriented to him all day long, every single day, because if we don't, we're going to end up off course again. And we have to take off this old way of living and in its place, put on something new. So let's look at what we're to put on. In chapter four, verse 25 through chapter five, verse two, Paul gives us a list of things that followers of Jesus are to put on new ways of living that line up with a new identity that's been given to us through Jesus. And at first glance, this list may feel strange and backwards. 
which makes sense. I mean, if you have an old pair of jeans that's just so full of holes that you can't even wear it anymore because you've had it forever, and you have to replace it with a brand new pair of jeans. The new pair of jeans, you know, stiff, it's uncomfortable, it never feels as comfortable as that old, super broken in pair. And it's going to be the same with this new way of living. It's going to, when we first try it on, it's going to feel weird. And it's because we've been so trained in the world's ways, we've been so shaped and influenced by the way, ways the world teaches us to live, that when we look at God's ways, they just don't feel right at first. But again, if the Bible is true, if God really exists, really made the world, really knows how it works best, then no matter how strange it feels at first, the way he tells us to live really is the best way to live. And Paul has instructions for us here about several different areas of life, things like truthfulness and anger and money and speech and relationships in general. It's comprehensive, far-reaching. If we wanted to look at all these things in depth, we could be here all night long and into the day tomorrow. And we don't have time for that. So instead of trying to cover all of these different instructions in depth, I'm going to look at three things that they all have in common and just walk us through that and show us what that means for our lives. And these three things come from a pastor named John Stott. So the first thing is that all of these instructions have to do with our relationships. All of these instructions have to do with our relationships with other people which makes sense. I mean, one of the themes we've been seeing in Ephesians is that when God rescues us, when God saves us, he gives Christians new relationships with one another. So it makes sense that there would be instructions for how to live in these relationships. And one of the big things that we saw about our relationships last time we were together looking at Ephesians is that God makes it so that the church is connected and united to one another, connected as one body. And therefore, what we do within the body impacts one another. Think about it in reference to telling the truth, the first instruction in this passage. I know this is a ridiculous example, but follow along with me just, just for the sake of illustration. Imagine you're super thirsty and someone hands you this boiling hot mug of tea. That's not the ridiculous part. I'll tell you the ridiculous part. It's so hot that like you've got the thick walls on the mug and you can still like your fingers are burning through the walls of the mug. Okay, here's the ridiculous part. Imagine that you somehow had the ability to send a false signal from your fingers to your brain and tell your brain, this is the perfect temperature for taking a huge gulp to satisfy your thirst. Have your fingers play a little trick on your mouth, you know? Now, even if you physically had the ability to do that, would you want to do that? No, you'd be very foolish to try that. And why? Because your hand and your mouth are part of the same body. Doing something that, that harms one of them actually harms the other one. It, it doesn't matter how funny the joke would be theoretically, it, it wouldn't be funny at all actually. Even if you were physically able to do it, you wouldn't want to do it because when your mouth is burnt, your whole body feels out of whack and your hands are going to suffer from that. And Paul says, in the same way, all Christians are members of one another. Just like your hand and your mouth are members of the same body, you and I are members of the body of Christ. And what happens to one of us impacts all of us. Even if we could hurt one another to get ourselves ahead, it's not a good idea because we're going to end up only hurting ourselves. 
in the end. That's what it means that we're connected to one another. And therefore, it's so important for us to tell the truth to one another. And think about what this relational focus of the commands means. If all the instructions in this passage about how to live as Christians have to do with how we relate to one another, what does that tell us about the Christian life? It tells us the Christian life is only being lived properly when it's being lived in community. The Christian life is only being lived properly when it's being lived in community. I think there's a common idea in our world that that the Christian life can be lived out just between me and God. Don't need other people around. Don't need to interact with other Christians. And, And yes, time alone with God is very important. But what Paul is saying here is that time alone with God, if done properly, is always a preparation for coming back and being able to love other people well because the Christian life is only lived properly if it's lived in community. So that's the first thing here. All these instructions have to do with our relationships with one another. Second, each instruction has something negative we're told to stop doing, but it doesn't stop there. It actually includes something positive that's supposed to come in and take the place of that too. So he says, if you're doing something wrong, it's not enough to just stop it. Sure, that's a step in the right direction, but it's not the full way. If you really want to to be done with that, the true thing you need to do is replace that with a constructive, a, a corresponding constructive positive behavior in its place. So he says, the person who's lying, put away falsehood and speak the truth. The person who has struggles with anger, and we actually see two wrong ways of approaching anger here. Either you can approach anger by blowing up at someone, and that would be sinning, or you can approach anger wrong by bottling it up and holding it inside, and that would be letting the sun go down on your anger. He's saying, regardless of which wrong approach to anger you take, learn to handle anger the right way. Recognize your anger, deal with it calmly and constructively, not abusively and violently, but deal with it directly rather than bottling it up. Deal with it calmly and constructively rather than exploding. Deal with your anger in a healthy way. He he says for the person who's stealing money, stop stealing, replace that with hard work that enables generosity. If you're speaking corrupting talk, which is anything designed to tear another person down, if you're speaking corrupting talk, replace that with talk that builds other people up. And, And if you're prone to this just, fighting combative behavior, things like bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. He says, stop that, replace it with kindness and compassion and forgiveness and love. And so why is it not enough to just stop the bad behavior? Right? Like if, if you have someone in your life who's lying to you all the time or stealing from you, I'm guessing most of us would be happy if that person just stopped lying or stopped stealing. Even if they didn't start becoming a fountain of truth or super generous, we would just be glad to be free of the burden that their bad behavior brings. Is that accurate? So why does Paul take us a step further and say you need to replace that bad behavior with good behavior? Here's why. Because the good behavior shows that our hearts have changed, not just our circumstances. The good behavior shows that our hearts have changed, not just our circumstances. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's, let's think of an example. Imagine there's a thief. Why is this person a thief? Maybe they're lazy. 
maybe they're entitled. They feel like they deserve to have everything they want in life without having to work for it. That's what's happening in their heart that's driving their behavior. Now, imagine this thief one day wins the lottery. Are they going to keep stealing? Maybe, but hopefully not, right? Because guess what? They now can have everything they need in life provided for them without having to work. Isn't that wonderful? Their circumstances have changed to make it so they don't need to do this bad behavior anymore. But guess what? If it's only their circumstances that changed, their behavior will change, but their hearts won't. And say that a day comes where they've spent up all their money from their lottery winnings, what's going to happen? They're going to go right back to that bad behavior because their hearts never change. They're still the same lazy, entitled person they've always been. They just had circumstances that enabled that behavior without having to act in harmful ways to get it fulfilled. The thing that's really going to show you that their hearts have changed, not their, just their circumstances, and is when this lazy, entitled person starts working hard so that they can have enough to be generous. When they stop leeching off of other people and instead become a source of generosity who can care for the people around them. That shows that there's been a genuine change at the core of their being that's led to a new way of living. Or one more example. He, he talks at the end about um, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice being put away from you. Imagine a family where the dad is a bully. He just, you know, if anyone upsets him, there's wrath. His angry outbursts come out against everyone in the house. He shouts, he raises a clamor at the slightest annoyance, and maybe even this occasionally spills over into some type of physical violence and abuse against people in the house. Now, if the dad consistently acts this way, what's going to happen in that family? The wife and kids are going to very quickly learn we don't do anything that's going to set that off. They try and accommodate his every, every wish, try to anticipate his mood and appease him if he seems on edge. And if the family gets really, really good at that, you know what might happen? The angry outburst might go away for a while. But is that a heart change or is that just a circumstance change? It's a circumstance change. You know, it's, it's not chaotic at home, it's not violent at home, but you're still not safe to really be yourself. Sure, it's been weeks since dad had an outburst, but all it takes is dinner being five minutes late on a night where he's really hungry and he's right back at it. But how can you tell if his heart has changed and not just his circumstances? Because he replaces that bad behavior with a corresponding good behavior. If in place of anger and outrage and, and violence, he starts showing kindness and compassion and forgiveness and love to his family members, they're going to have peace in that home, but it's going to be a deeper peace than the false peace they had through appeasing him. Because everyone's going to be free to just be themselves again. It's going to create a, a context of safety and trust that allows them to be themselves. They're going to have flourishing in that home, not just an absence of conflict. It's not just enough to get rid of the bad behavior because bad behavior going away could be due to circumstances. If you really want to know that heart change is there, you need to have a corresponding good behavior taking its place. Because remember, heart is the control center of our lives. If we want to have lasting change, it needs to be coming from the heart. So first, we saw all of these commands have to do with our relationship. Second, we see it's not just enough to get rid of the bad behavior. We have to replace it with putting on this new behavior. And third, 
Each command has a reason given for why we should obey, which brings us to our third point. Why the change? See, my guess is for most of us, if we look at this list of commands, stop doing these things, start doing these things, most of us would have one of two responses to that. Either response number one, nope, I'm not strong enough, not good enough, I can't do it, I've tried before and failed, why even bother trying again? That's response one. Or response two, great, now I know what God wants me to do, I'm gonna go do it. Okay, I'm guessing most of us would fall into one of those two camps. Either no way, not possible, can't do it, or great, I'm on it. And both of these responses on their own are dangerous. Now, why is that? Because they depend totally on you. You know, we, we look at that first response, no, I can't do it, and we justify it by saying, you know, I don't want to get excited and set myself up for disappointment. I don't want to disappoint God. I don't want to disappoint the other people in the church. But really what you're doing in that first response is you're looking at your past failures. You're deciding that they define your future, not God, that, that actually your past failures are too big for God. God can't change me. God can't rescue me from myself. Why even bother trying to follow him? It's all about you and yourself and what you can do. And at first glance, the second response seems better. Like it's trying to obey, right? But, but look where it leads us. We go out, we're, we're determined to obey, and one of two things is going to happen. Either we try really hard and fail, and when we fail, we get discouraged and depressed. We beat ourselves up and heap shame on ourselves for not doing better, and we start slipping back into that first response of, believing that change is never really even possible, losing hope. Or we do really well at all of these things and we become proud. And we start looking down on everyone else who can't quite live up to our standard. I mean, ultimately, these two responses can only lead to one of two places, pride or shame. And pride and shame both kill love. Pride kills, shame. Pride kills love because it looks down on others. It judges them as unworthy of receiving our love. Shame kills love because it looks down on ourselves and judges ourselves as unworthy of receiving love. If we rely on either of these responses, it's going to lead to pride or shame. It's going to kill love. It's going to crash and burn. So how do we get to the place where we can obey these commands but do it in a way that leads to love, in a way that's sustainable and healthy rather than destructive. And this is where the reasons Paul gives for obedience come into play. He lists them out, the reasons that he tells us for doing these things. Speak the truth because we're members of one another. Be angry and do not sin so you don't give an opportunity to the devil. Let the thief be generous so that he may have something to give with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talks come out of your mouth, but what gives up so that you don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Put away bitterness, wrath, anger, and be kind, loving, forgiving, because God in Christ forgave you. See, all these motivations, they actually reflect a reorientation of our priorities in life. All these motivations take us out of the center, and in the central place in our life, they put an awareness of God and what he has done. See, why are we members of one another? because God made us members of one another. Why are we even able to fight the devil or resist him? Because God empowers us to do that. Why should we be generous? Because God has been generous to us. God has given us grace. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's forgiven us. He has done all these things 
It's when we learn to see him as central in our lives that we learn to live properly in response to him. And so how do we learn to do that? How do we learn to live with that new perspective? Well, Paul tells us in verse five, chapter five, verse one, imitate God as beloved children. One thing I've learned from having kids, kids love to imitate. We went for a hike yesterday with a family that has a, kids a few years older than ours. Judah was imitating all day long. He saw the older kids pick up sticks to walk with, and guess what he wanted to do? He needed his own stick. He saw the other kids hitting things with sticks. And it doesn't matter if mom and dad say to stop hitting things with sticks, he wants to hit things with sticks. He sees the other kids climbing on things and jumping off of them while holding their sticks. And mom and dad say, give us your stick before you jump off. No, no, no. Jumps off, falls and smashes his face. He imitates, he wants to be like them. And it's not just them. We went to the village bakery in Moiwo afterwards and he saw me getting the little tongs to grab some, some treats from the bakery. And guess what he grabbed? He grabbed the tongs, he opened the door, he grabbed a <laughs> bun for himself and dropped it on the floor. And then it's not just me. We went to a restaurant to eat afterwards and Isaiah starts taking his shoes off. And guess what Judah does? Takes his shoes off. Isaiah's putting his feet on the table and guess what Judah wants to do? <laughs> I'm like, don't put your feet on the table. But he imitates, kids imitate. We all imitate actually. Imitation, it's one of the strongest ways we learn to do new things. How do we all learn to speak our first language? By imitating the adults around us. How do we learn to eat with utensils? By imitating the adults around us. And how do we learn to love properly? By imitating Christ. Christ sets us the perfect example of love. But if that's all he did, it would crush us. Because one of the things about imitation, when you try to imitate, you often fail. Judah tried to imitate jumping off the rock with a stick in his hand and he smashed his face. Judah tried to imitate picking up the bread and he dropped it on the floor. We try to imitate Christ and we fail. I mean, I mean, think about this. Love as Christ loved us. You read through the gospels. One of the things you'll see, Jesus over and over and over again gets interrupted a lot. Never once does he turn around and be like, why are you interrupting me? Let me tell you, my kids interrupt me sometimes. I'm nowhere near as patient with them as Jesus is with everyone. I fail at imitating him. If my confidence is I just need to imitate him and do a good job of that, I'm gonna fail, it's gonna crush me. But what we see is he's not just the example, he's also the savior. Chapter five, verse two says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. He died to pay the price for each time you and I fail. He forgives us and rescues us. He sends us the Holy Spirit into our hearts to remind us of that truth and to reorient us back to God each time we mess up. And it's when we see that, that our hearts begin to be drawn into this new way of living with God at the center where we can truly love others. You can think of it kind of like a metal rod. If you have a metal rod, that's a straight rod and you need to bend it so the ends touch each other. You could just look at it and say, nope, not gonna happen. I cannot bend that rod. And that's like the first response, I cannot obey God. You could say, let me use my brute strength to bend this rod. And what's gonna happen if you do that, most likely? The rod's gonna snap, because it's not meant to be bent like that. But there's a third way to bend that rod and get the ends to touch each other. You know what that is? You heat it up. 
if you heat up the rod, it softens it so you can bend it or you could soften it enough that it melts and you put it into a new mold in the shape that it's supposed to be. That's what God's love does to our hearts. It softens us so that we can be changed into the image of what he wants us to be. So that we can be reshaped into people who love, us, who love one another and love God without breaking in the process. The more deeply we understand who God is and what he's done for us and how he loves us, and the more we learn to celebrate those realities and let them sink into our hearts, the more he's going to reshape us into the people he wants us to be, people who put off that harmful, destructive old way of living and put on a way of living that loves one another and shows our love for God through the way we treat one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us and teaching us about who you want us to be. Thank you for this invitation to put off the old, harmful, destructive ways of living and put on new loving, kind ways in their place. And I pray that you would equip us and empower us to do that this week. Help us to know your love and let that be what motivates us and empowers us to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.